Well, good morning again. If uh, you are new here, my name is Dave Lundberg, and I am a pastor here, getting used to that. Um, and uh, welcome to GCF if you are new. To all my brothers and sisters in Christ, it is so wonderful to see you. And it is a blessing for me to get to preach on Psalm 23. Wow. I, I feel like that's a gift from Jeff as he left to go on sabbatical. So our lead pastor, Jeff, is on sabbatical for a month. So you will be seeing some different speakers up here uh, every Sunday. And he gave me the, this wonderful task of getting to exposit and preach Psalm 23 to you all this morning. So there's a lot of good here for us. Um, if you're willing and able, please stand as we read through Psalm 23. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's ask God for help. Father, um, as we just sang in these beautiful songs, these beautiful hymns, speak, O Lord. Feed us with your holy word. God, I humbly confess up here before these saints that I am but a broken, fallen man, and I am a vessel to be used by you. I thank you for the labor that you've just helped me with with this message and pray that it would sink deep into the hearts of everyone that's here this morning. God, we give you the glory. Thank you for how you use David here in the Psalms and the blessing that we get to hear you speak to us today through your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as the first couple years of 2020 are currently the front runner for being possibly the worst season that Americans will have experienced in their lifetime. The first two years of the 1870s were even worse for a man named Horatio Spafford. See, things started off well for Mr. Spafford. He was a successful lawyer, businessman living in Chicago. He had a wonderful family, a wife and five children. But things started to take an ugly turn in 1871 as his youngest child, who was his only son, caught pneumonia and tragically died. Shortly after, he then had to face the loss of watching his business, all his real estate assets go up in flame during the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. So a couple years later, he worked hard to reestablish his business. It was time for a vacation. His wife and now four daughters decided to cross the Atlantic and go into Europe to have a little family trip. But an unexpected business issue occurred and his family had to go ahead of him. So Mr. Spafford would stay back a couple days, catch another ship and reunite with them in Europe. But sadly, that day never happened as only a couple days after his family left, he received a telegram from his wife that simply said, 
saved alone, what shall I do? Well, Horatio quickly learned that the French ocean liner that was carrying his family along with 308 other passengers collided with another vessel. And it only took 12 short minutes to sink to the bottom of the ocean. Tragically, only 87 passengers survived, none of which were his four precious girls. Well, Horatio, of course, quickly boarded another vessel to run to his grieving wife, who was now stranded in Europe. And during the four-day cruise, a captain called Mr. Spafford into his cabin to let him know the exact moment they were passing over the portion where the ship sank and he lost his four little girls. So deeply grieved and trying to wrap his head around all this loss, just in two short years, real estate assets, his business, and worst of all, all five of his children. He put ink to paper and he penned the following words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, that it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine, for in death as in life, thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. It is well with my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. How could somebody possibly have this sort of peace in light of all this suffering and loss? To be able to, to feel and process real emotions of, of anger and hurt, grief, sadness, all the while deep down in their soul resolving that it is well? Well, Horatio's writing was later put to music and to this day is one of the most played hymns at funerals and just places where people find themselves smack dab in the middle of darkness. And when I hear the story behind this famous hymn, I can't help but connect it to this confident peace that David has here in Psalm 23. And we know that the Psalms are commonly sought out to help comfort the afflicted. And Psalm 23 is usually at the top of the list, right? In fact, Psalm 23 could be one of the most known and famous sections of the Old Testament. It almost makes you of Horatio being a devout Christian read through this psalm that we're going to go through this morning as he penned this timeless hymn. So as David penned the famous line, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and Horatio wrote those familiar words, it is well with my soul. We can see a very important connection between the two. See, both are rooted they're, they're anchored in this unchanging truth that's relevant for even us this morning as we look at Psalm 23. And this is the truth, church, that I want you to walk away this morning remembering. That no matter what you go through in life, if the Lord is your shepherd, you're going to be okay. If the Lord is your shepherd, you're going to be okay. So we'll look at three points that support this claim, but before we dive in, I first want to look at verse 1 as there's a fundamental truth here that if 
if missed, we won't understand why the Lord is such a great shepherd. In fact, if it's missed, it's going to be really hard to even understand this psalm. So here's the truth. We are all like sheep, and we need a shepherd. We are all like sheep, and we need a shepherd. See, understanding this helps to make sense of David's proclamation here in verse 1, where he says, the Lord is my shepherd. He doesn't say, the Lord is Israel's shepherd. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. Very personal. And David's proclamation here is not only establishing the Lord as master above him, but it's also a humble confession that David himself is like a sheep. That David himself needs to be cared for like a sheep. And this is important to recognize, church, because we too are all like sheep. See, God through his word often uses sheep and their nature as a metaphor to describe his people. It's in passages like Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 1 Peter 2, 25, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So not only does scripture call us sheep, but it also reiterates how important it is that we have not only a shepherd, but a good shepherd. 1 Kings 22, 17, and he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. Ezekiel 34, 5 through 6, my sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Jeremiah 56, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill, they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. We are like sheep. And if you think this is flattering and something to be proud of because sheep are cuddly and cute, you're going to be very disappointed. See, there's a reason the Bible likens us to sheep. And it doesn't have to do with their cuddly cuteness. But it has to do with the fact that they are dependent, helpless creatures who cannot survive very long on their own. See, they require a shepherd for everything. So the next time you're feeling pretty self-confident in your own abilities and you feel that you're capable of just crushing this Christian life all on your own, you may want to remember what the Bible says about you. That you're really just a stubborn, helpless sheep who as a result needs a guardian. See, sheep are defenseless. They're hard to train because they can't hear or see well. They have no sense of direction, which means they often get lost. And they can't even help themselves up if they fall over on their back. They'll literally, I was going to put a bunch of pictures on here. I was like, Jeff would kill me. <laughs> it's hilarious. They're like on their back, hooves flopping in the air, and they will literally die that way if no one's there to turn them upright. We are like sheep. So if you take this truth in, Take it in and honestly examine yourself. Examine the last few, few years of your life, maybe even the last few weeks. You shouldn't have a problem surrendering to this truth. You know the moments you stubbornly stop listening to the Lord. 
You know the moments that you stopped looking at his word, maybe strayed a bit or lost your way. You know the times that the world pounced on you and it only took a moment to turn you into a helpless wreck, feeling like you were on your back, just completely helpless. See, recognizing that we are like sheep is a great first step in being able to fully trust the Lord and let him do what he is good at, taking care of his flock. See, if this is something that you can't come to grips with because it makes you seem weak, well, then you're really missing what it means to be a Christian. You are weak, and that's why you need a strong Savior. See, an astonishing part of verse 1 here is when we remember that David was a king, right? So here we have a king, a person esteemed to one of the highest positions possible, humbly admitting to being a sheep himself, saying he needs to be cared for. And this is true for all of us. We all need a shepherd's care because we're not made to do life on our own, by our own strength. And not to mention, we need a protector because we live amongst what I call the trinity of darkness, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We live in a world that just wants to seduce us. We live in flesh that we can't trust because it wants to be seduced. All the while, Satan is prowling around looking whom he may devour or sift like wheat. You're not meant to be wandering around on your own. You need to be defended. You will get yourself stuck. You will have so many physical needs. You will fail to listen. You're going to struggle to see at times. You're going to wander off. And as Jeff taught last week, you will face so much suffering in this lifetime that will require so much care. It's no wonder why our society is riddled with anxiety and fear and depression, right? I mean, this is, this is all cheery news this morning. See, life in this fallen world is no joke, though, right? It's very real, and life is very hard. But if the Lord is your shepherd, you're going to be okay. So let's look at our first point. You're going to be okay because the Lord is a shepherd who provides all your needs. The Lord is a shepherd who provides all your needs. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So after declaring that the Lord is his shepherd, David makes another bold statement here. I shall not want. Notice he doesn't say, I'm a king, so I shall not want. See, this verse is sometimes used to justify earthly prosperity. It's incorrectly taught to mean that the Lord's just going to give us everything we desire. Like saying, the Lord is my sugar daddy and he's going to give me anything I want. But the idea here is not that God gives us everything we ask for. Rather, he's giving us everything he knows that we need. But that word need, this too can go sideways, right? You all know that time that you're in the grocery store and you have to walk past the toy aisle and you see that mom repeatedly telling her child that they can't buy that $300 Marvel Lego set that comes with like two little figures and a little ship. <laughs> Legos are so expensive. It's a ripoff. What's that child likely to respond with? But mom, I, I need it. I need it, mom. And after not getting it, they storm out of the store with a bad attitude while being 
fully clothed, shoes on their feet, jumping in their air-conditioned car on the way home to get lunch that's going to be served and prepared for them while they play in their fun, cozy room, grumbling that they never get anything good in life. So David saying, I shall not want in verse 1 doesn't mean he's going to get everything he wants in abundance, but it means that he doesn't lack anything based on what he already has. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. I have the Lord who knows everything I, I need, and he'll provide it. So I lack nothing. Brothers and sisters, can you boldly proclaim this this morning? The Lord is your shepherd and you lack nothing? Or is there perhaps a conviction that at times you've been acting like that child? Where instead of counting your blessings day by day and trusting that everything that you have right now in this moment is the exact provision the Lord knows you need, you instead grumble because he's not giving you everything you want. Or perhaps he's not giving you everything that you think you need. I mean, if we're honest, verses like these can be difficult to take seriously. I mean, this is the holy word we're looking at, right? But when life doesn't seem like it's going the way we think it should, it can be hard to, to have this apply to us, to be relevant to us. When it doesn't seem that we're resting in lush green pastures or sitting beside still waters, we hear things like verse 2 and imagine that as Christians with God on our side, our life is supposed to look like this. I'm perfectly healthy. I'm happily married to the person of my dreams. I have the Instagram-worthy, picture-perfect family. I'm wealthy. I'm honored and esteemed by everyone. But in reality, the real picture of our life ends up looking something like this. My health is failing. There's so much drama in my life. My family's a, a mess. I haven't slept good in years. I hate my job. I never seem to have enough money for fun things. If you feel that this desert is more your reality, then realize that for David who wrote this psalm, this desert was also his reality, both figuratively and literally. See, David spent most of his younger years as a real shepherd. He knew what it was like to care for sheep, but more importantly, he knew the challenges of caring for them given the arid landscape of the Judean hills where he grew up. That picture of that desert was a real picture from the Judean hills. It's essentially a desert. Not a lot of green pastures over there. See, while David in verses 1 through 3 describes the Lord as a shepherd who lays his sheep down in green pastures by still waters, his life ironically looked very different. He grew up in a desert that nearly lacked everything. Lack surrounded him. Resources were scarce and only had limited availability based on the seasons. And think about his life. David lived as an outlaw. He was hunted down like an animal. His own son betrayed him and then was murdered. He committed adultery, which resulted in another one of his sons being murdered. He murdered himself. He didn't murder himself, but he murdered himself. He made poor leadership decisions that led to the people that he was supposed to care for dying from a plague. When we look at this, it seems like David lacked everything all the time. That the Lord did nothing good for him at all. But yet here he is boldly proclaiming 
No, the Lord is my shepherd, and I lack nothing. Despite my circumstances, it is well with my soul. See, he knew who his shepherd is, and, and that's what we need to key on this morning. Do you know who your shepherd is? What he's capable of? See, David knew that he could never fully rely on the world to meet his needs. Because like this desert, the world is lacking. It will always lack. So these green pastures and still waters mentioned here in these verses, they're coming from outside, something outside of our world, a place where only one shepherd has to be God himself could lead you to. And sure, the Lord will provide for David's practical and physical needs, and there's a little bit of that there, but that's not what the main focus is. The main focus is that David has the Lord, period. And this is true for us today. He leads us to green pastures. He feeds us and nourishes us with his holy word, which will never run out. We have an abundant supply of food right here. He lays us beside still waters. He provides peace and rest in the midst of chaos that surrounds us. He restores our souls. The Hebrew word for restore here means to return or to, to bring something back in. So he brings our souls back in. As we wander from the flock, he pursues us, he goes after us, and he brings our souls back to where they should be. This practically can look like turning our minds back to right thinking when they've gone astray. Or maybe breaking habits that have reformed back in your life. Or bringing your soul's desire back to holiness when maybe it's been dabbling with the world again a little too much. See, he, he gets us in these ravines. That's what paths of righteousness means. In Israel, there were these little trenches, these ravines that went up the hill as a track to keep the shepherd going in the right direction. And that's what he does for us. So if the Lord is your shepherd, you're going to be okay because he provides all your needs. Next, you're going to be okay because the Lord is a shepherd who is present with you in darkness. The Lord is a shepherd who is present with you in darkness. Now, one important thing to understand when it comes to shepherding is that the shepherd never drives from the back like, like they would cattle, right? The shepherd leads in the front. So where the shepherd goes, they follow. And this is helpful to know as we read verse 4, Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Lord, you are with me. You are with me. See, this is interesting because David recognized that under the shepherd's leading, under the shepherd's leading, he would follow him. David would follow the Lord through the dark valleys. See, if the Lord is your shepherd and he is with you, then that means he's in front of you. He's leading you. There's some translation debate over exactly what the Hebrew means here as some translations describe it as the valley of the shadow of death where other translations describe it more simply as the darkest valleys. But either way, we can confidently interpret this as David finding hope and security in the Lord through darkness and uncertainty because he knows he's being led through it. See, that's the kicker. The Lord is present with him, so he will fear no evil. Another fun fact about sheep is that they don't do well with darkness. It's hard for them to see. So in the daytime, 
So darkness, of course, just further decreases their visibility. But more importantly, darkness just simply scares sheep. They don't like it. It makes them uneasy. And <laughs> I was reading some training resources on getting sheep into barns. Sometimes sermon research leads you in some pretty weird places, I'll tell you. And uh, one of the tips was to ensure that all the dark corners of your barn were well lit. Otherwise, the sheep wouldn't fully fill in and, and take up all the space. And I thought, man, that's like us. Like, we don't do well with darkness, do we? And I'm not just speaking about the absence of light, though. Some of us are very afraid of the dark. That is a real thing. But I'm talking about what David is metaphorically speaking of here in Psalm 23. Evil, uncertainty, dark and troubling times, hardship. Who in their right mind wants to travel into this, into a dark valley? So like sheep, we try to avoid them at all costs. But it's an interesting thought that the shepherd is actually leading us through them. He's calling us into them. Just as he goes. He's not like, you go that way and I'll see you on the other side. Right? He's like, let's go. Leads the way. And perhaps because of emotionalism or fear, our focus can sometimes, I think, be laser focused in this psalm on this spot, this spot, the darkest valley. Like, I'm in this dark, darkest valley. That's me. That's right there. That's where I'm at. That's, it's so dark. It's terrible. And it consumes our mind and it stirs up all this fear. And that's all we dwell on. But really what we should be focused on, what we should be highlighting, circling, underlining is the you are with me part. Don't miss this this morning, church, that though you walk through dark valleys, the Lord, your good shepherd, he's calling you to follow him through them. And he is with you the entire time. He's in control. That's the word we want to hear, right? We want to know that. He's in full control. He knows what he's doing. So is your focus primarily on the valley or is your focus on the shepherd? Death is by far one of the most feared dark valleys for us humans to think about. Uh, research, research is showing that our brains even try to shield us from thinking about our own mortality because it's so hard to process. Uh, one article says, our brains do their best to keep us from dwelling on our inevitable demise. A study found that the brain shields us from existential fear by categorizing death as an unfortunate event that only befalls other people, not ourselves. <laughs> Interesting. Everyone around me is going to die, but I won't. Our, we thought our brains were pretty smart. Perhaps death is something, though, we should be thinking about more often, right? I mean, we live under death's shadow every day. That's the truth. That's the reality, isn't it? Everywhere we go, death is looming over us. But brothers and sisters, death and darkness shouldn't consume your mind as it is something that you have been set free from if you are in Christ. Matthew 4.16 says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Amen. A light has dawned. His name is Jesus. Our great shepherd who is not only present with us in the darkness, but he defeated darkness entirely. Do you realize that this morning? Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says, 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, because Jesus has defeated death, that means the same goes for those who are in his fold. So we too boldly get to say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We shall fear no evil. One theologian says, God's sheep shall not be lost in the valley, but get safe to the mountain on the other side. Death is a king of terrors, but not to the sheep of Christ. See, if Jesus is your shepherd, then even the most feared thing, death, is but a harmless shadow that you are just simply passing by. If you find yourself in a dark valley today, it's a great reminder that this is not your final destination. This dark valley that you are in is not your home. You are not setting up a place to sit there and live. You're merely passing through it behind a a great shepherd who is well-equipped to get you through. Spurgeon writes, It is not the valley of death, but the valley of the shadow of death. For death in its substance has been removed, and only the shadow of it remains. Someone has said that when there's a shadow, there must be light somewhere, and so there is. Death stands by the side of the highway in which we have to travel, and the light of heaven shining upon him throws a shadow across our path. Let us then rejoice that there is a light beyond. Nobody's afraid of a shadow, for a shadow cannot stop a man's pathway even for a moment. The shadow of a dog cannot bite. The shadow of a sword cannot kill. The shadow of death cannot destroy us. Let us not therefore be afraid. See, if the Lord is your shepherd, you're going to be okay. Because the Lord is a shepherd who provides all your needs, who's present with you in darkness, And our last point, the Lord is a shepherd whose provision will be enough forever. The Lord is a shepherd whose provision will be enough forever. On our first wedding anniversary, Kelly and I traveled to D.C., and that's where I fell in love. Not with Kelly, because I was already, obviously already in love with her, but with a Brazilian steakhouse called Fogo de Chao. Fogo de Chao. I still hear it calling me. This was an all-you-can-eat, don-your-stretchy-pants, like, kind of place that served all kinds of fire-roasted meat everywhere. You could literally eat every single piece of meat they had in that place. This wasn't like, I'm going to order the steak, and that's all I get. You can order everything. And on your table, there's a card, green side, red side. Green means go, baby. If you flip that card to green, so long that it's flipped up, these gauchos just come running over, just so happy to just slice you meat. And they're coming from all different angles and with different meats and coming over my shoulder and just, here you go. And your plate's filled up within seconds. You literally have to turn your card around to red to get them to stop. It was amazing. (laughs) Safe to say I did commit sin of overindulging that night. And I'm being dead serious. I was very ashamed of myself, and Kelly was not too impressed on our anniversary either. (laughs) I don't think I ever experienced that type of hospitality or spread before. Like, these gauchos were so delighted to come slice meat for me, and it just kept coming and coming and coming forever. The abundance of food and hospitality in this place was unreal. 
And here David shifts from a picture of God's care and provision as a shepherd to that of a host. A great host who is eagerly to abundantly provide to take care for his esteemed guest. Let's look at Psalm 23.5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is, uh, it signifies that of like a victorious celebration. That the Lord doesn't just put before David a small bite, a little plate on his doorstep so he can eat as he passes by. Rather, he provides this feast for David, this massive spread so large that it has to fit this entire table as if to say, stay for a while. Stay here, make yourself at home. Feast. And this signifies that David's not just a passerby, but he's a long-term esteemed guest who is welcome at the Lord's table. Here he will receive the Lord's provision over and over and over, so bountiful that it makes David's reality of his enemies insignificant. Fails in comparison. See, good hospitality in ancient Israel was, was common practice. It was very important to ensure that your guests were honored and well taken care of. Uh, one of the customs of the host was to, uh, to, to drip oil on their guests' heads. These oils would often be mixed with perfumes and fragrances and uh, just help to really rejuvenate and refresh their guests, especially if they had traveled uh, very long distances to get there. But it also signified uh, general gladness, joy, and celebration that we're together and we're breaking bread. And then another custom was to never let their guest cup go empty. So whatever they're drinking, usually it was tea, if, if it just went down a little bit, so long they were still drinking, they would just keep pouring tea into their cup. It was always full. You would never, ever let your guest's cup go empty. So David here is really stressing the abundance of provision that he's receiving from this amazing host, the Lord. On this Calvin comment, this exuberant store of oil and also this overflowing cup ought to be explained as denoting the abundance which goes beyond the mere supply of the common necessities of life. For David had been amply furnished with royal wealth. David had been amply furnished with royal wealth. The same is true for us here this morning, church. Though we all, of course, receive varying degrees of the Lord's provision here on earth, that's evident, we can have certainty that the Lord's provision is, is more than enough for all of us, for eternity. Because we all have been amply furnished with royal wealth. Every single one of us. We've been given Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is who David is speaking of here in Psalm 23. Jesus is the good shepherd who provides what you need most by dying in your place on the cross. Jesus is the good shepherd who is present with you in darkness because he defeated death by rising from the grave, and so will we. And Jesus' provision is more than enough because it's by his blood that was shed for you, that you've been saved, and now you are co-heirs with Christ. Romans eight seventeen. this means that Jesus has forever made you a beneficiary with full rights to, en to enjoy all of God's inheritance. That's amazing. Everything that is in Christ, everything that is his is yours. Our cup 
overflows because we have Christ. Can you see this despite your current circumstances? Can you see God's generosity? I love the line from the song we sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me. What gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. There is no more for heaven now to give. Do you get that? God has given you everything in Christ. There is no more that heaven could ever offer or give. Heaven literally emptied out its pockets. It gathered every bit of spare change from under the sofa. It left no money behind to give us Jesus. There's nothing more that heaven can give. Think about this the next time that you are tempted to accuse God of withholding from you. That he has given you the most valuable gift that you could ever receive. Oh, that we would rejoice in this church in the midst of our trials. And instead of shaking our fists at God like, like that child that doesn't get what they want, we would see, see Jesus instead and proclaim, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Knowing that you lack nothing. Because in Christ, you have every single thing you ever need. And if you have Christ as your shepherd, you have him forever. So David ends with verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This, brothers and sisters, is how one can say, it is well with my soul. In the midst of passing through these dark valleys in this lifetime. But this can only happen if you can honestly proclaim that the Lord is your shepherd. If you are here this morning and you are not in God's flock, then the Bible says that you're not one of his sheep, but you're a goat. And there's reason behind that. It's because goats are stubbornly independent and they don't want to be led by anybody. If this is you this morning, then understand that you are left to care to provide, to travel through dark valleys, all without a great shepherd, all on your own. And worst of all, this means that you're going to have to give an account for your sins alone. And I'll tell you right now, this is something you will never be able to afford. Matthew 25 paints a grim picture of what this will look like in the end. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous, his sheep to eternal life. Our Lord knows who his sheep are, and he says they can hear him calling. They recognize his voice. If you hear him calling you this morning, repent of your ways and run to your great shepherd. After that vessel that was carrying Mr. Spafford's wife and four daughters collided, Anna, this is his wife's name, quickly brought her four little girls up to the deck of the ship as it was sinking, and she knelt uh, before them and prayed. She prayed that God would either spare them, if it be his will, or that he would be willing, he would make them willing to endure whatever awaited them. And shortly after losing all of them, a survivor recalled Anna saying, 
God gave me four daughters. Now they have been taken from me. Someday I will understand why. Brothers and sisters, may we exude this type of confidence found in the Spafford story and David's account here in Psalm 23. Let's live it. I know there's so many of you who have suffered great pain in this room. But this is the truth. That with Christ as our shepherd, we lack nothing. Nothing. And despite what darkness that we face in this lifetime, we have Christ forever. And we can trust that we're going to be okay. Let's pray.